All right, does it look like it's coming through okay there? Okay, perfect, thank you. I might actually move this down a little bit. Not. Is that a little better? Okay. Okay, um, we're gonna go ahead and pick up on numbers. So what we've been doing is working through a book called All the Prayers of the Bible. And uh, the one that we're looking at now is the book of Numbers. And if you want to take a look at that book, it is, um, it's on the shelf, on the black bookshelves. But if you could leave it there, sometimes I refer to it when I'm here at the church. But if you want to take a look at it, I think it's a worthwhile book to read through. Numbers uh, has a, a fair uh, variety of prayers in the book. Um, he starts out in Numbers chapter 6. So if you turn there with me, Numbers chapter 6. In the book on page 40, he says this, There is nothing loose, cheap, or irreverent in biblical prayers. Heartfelt utterances carry a solemn stateliness. So let's look at Numbers 6, verses 24 through 27. Someone be willing to read those for us. Number 6, 24, 27. Bruce, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. So as a family, we've been uh, working through the book of Ecclesiastes in the last few weeks, and we talked about from Ecclesiastes 5, this idea of making a vow, this idea of invoking or calling on God's name as witness of something. And here it's less calling on God as a witness, as in a vow, and more calling on God for purposes of a blessing, because his power is what stands behind any effective blessing. So... Some people would see here a connection between this threefold invocation and the Trinity. Would you, do you guys see a connection? The fact that he repeats it in three different ways, is that significant in light of the Trinity or do you see no connection there? Any thoughts on that? I'm not advocating strongly for that view. I'm just mentioning it. I think it's an intriguing idea. Sometimes we'll encounter ideas that have no basis. So sometimes people have noticed that Isaiah has 66 chapters and there's 66 books of the Bible. So they've said each chapter of Isaiah corresponds to a book of the Bible. But the problem with that is if you end up saying, all right, so which one does Isaiah correspond to? Can it correspond to itself? And... Um, the bottom line is it's easy to get carried away with things that are sometimes coincidences. I don't think it's a coincidence that God had it be repeated three times, but it could have simply been for emphasis more than to teach some sort of hidden aspect about the Trinity. That being said, this idea of a blessing that is repeated three times is not unique to the book of Numbers. Let me read for you Genesis 48, uh, verses 15 through 16. And it says here, the God who, um, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, this is the blessing of Joseph, 
the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. May my name live on in them and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So there's repetition and um, in the context of blessings in Genesis 48. There's some other examples as well we won't look at for sake of time. Um, but uh, the point would be he's driving home this idea that God is the one who is providing for the people of Israel, who is blessing them. He's connecting it, I think, when they would have heard that blessing, I think they would have thought back to the blessings of Jacob, also called Israel, on his sons, and seen there a direct development of what God had done then and was continuing to do in this moment. And so um, this is uh, an idea of a, of a benediction or a blessing. Um, some churches have a more formal, we could call it a liturgy, that would be a pattern of worship. Uh, sometimes we get hung up on that, on that word. Uh, the reality is every church has a liturgy. If you sing two songs before the offering, that's a kind of liturgy, whether it's intentional or not. If you have special music before the sermon, that's a kind of liturgy as well. So sometimes we get uh, very suspicious of the idea of liturgy, and I think what we should be suspicious of is not the fact that there are regular patterns, but if those patterns become so, so much a part of the background of what we're doing that they lose all significance. So, for example, um, if we say the Lord's Prayer out of a necessity because someone said you have to say that after having confessed your sin, you have to say the Our Father however many times, it loses all significance if we say it 20 or 30 times in a row. So I don't think that we should do thing prayer that way, but it is not bad for us to have patterns. Sometimes the patterns um, can be helpful for someone to become familiar with what is going on. Um, there was a joke told of a little boy who brought his friend to the service, and his friend had never been to church before. So someone stood up front, and they said, so, all right, everybody, it's time to shake hands. He says, what does that mean? We're going to be friendly to everybody. We're going to go around and shake their hands. Oh, okay, so they did that. And they said, turn to number 42. It's like, what does that mean? Open the book in front of you. That's a hymnal. It's got songs in it. Turn to number 42. We're going to sing number 42. So he does that. They keep going down through all the different things of the service. The pastor gets his watch, takes it off, sets it on the side of the podium. What's that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> My point is, we are familiar with the way that things go because there's a predictable pattern. Sometimes it's good to change the pattern if it's become too mechanical or thoughtless, but the pattern in and of itself is not bad. The reason I'm saying all this, some churches will have a benediction at the end of the service. They'll use something like this, and they will say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Or there's another one, um, uh, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, and, and, the, and the rest of that from, I think it's Jude, but I, I'm not remembering the exact reference. They'll, they'll say that at the end of the service. Now, that's not a bad thing to say. Two things to remember. One is, the benediction has no power just because we say the words. The power that stands behind the benediction is God's power. So to the extent that we pronounce that blessing in faith 
recognizing God's power behind it, God then, in many cases, will bless his people according to those words. That being said, um, we cannot sort of, um, as much as the story of Jacob might make us think this to the contrary, we can't arm wrestle God in the corner and be like, you have to bless this person in the way that I want, in this particular moment, in this specific um, timetable that I've laid out for you. But it's not bad to say we recognize God's power, we ask for God's blessing on this particular group of people. So, take a moment, and there's a little bit of a blank there under that section. Write down your thoughts about benediction toward others, its place in the church or in daily conversation, maybe how it compares to the daily prayers in the lives of the Israelites. Well, that's a lot of questions, but just if you have any quick thoughts, go ahead and write those down. I know some of you may still be writing. Any, any initial thoughts or responses that come to mind that may be something that you wrote down that you'd be willing to share? Jonathan? Okay. Yeah, so reassurance about God's promises. Sandra? Yeah, so repetition is an important part of, of memorization, and uh, there's significance there that we should pay attention to. Okay, anything else, Rob? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a place for us to consider doing a benediction at the end of a service, 
But if you're not walking with God on your own, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at, Rob? Okay. Good. Anything else? If we take this and think about what it says when he says, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will then bless them. If we would say, and I think that we would legitimately say, based on the progression of Scripture, that you and I are not Israel, how then do we take a benediction like this and follow the form of it? Or is it appropriate to say this blessing to someone who is not an Israelite? Any quick thoughts on that before we pray about this together? I guess here's what I'm trying to say. God said, say this to the tribes of Israel. I'm not one of the tribes, I'm not, as far as I know, descended from one of the tribes of Israel. So is it appropriate for me to borrow this form that God gave to the Israelites and say it to you if you're also not an Israelite? Or if it is, do we say the exact same words or do we change it a little bit? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Okay, any quick thoughts on that, Jonathan? Sure. I think I would see this. Okay, other thoughts before I say, otherwise I don't want to stop the discussion too early. Any other thoughts on that? Sandra. Okay. Okay. Okay, so how would we determine that in this context? Because right before it, verse 21, it talks about the law of the Nazarite. And right after it, it talks about setting up the tabernacle. So on what basis, and I'm not disagreeing, I think that's an important point or consideration, on what basis would we say we can pray this prayer even though we don't do Nazarite vows and we don't have a tabernacle? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's, it's something that, you know, sure, it was used for them specifically at that time, but when you look at it and what it actually says, there's no reason it can't be applied. Okay. So maybe a parallel would be if we can say the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples, then we can also say the benediction that Aaron blessed the people of Israel with to the extent that it's got timeless truth about God and his relationship to his people. Okay. Anything else, Norma? The one who, where it says, if my people call by my name. That's, what, that's an interesting one. So I think it's important to talk about that because that gets applied to the United States a lot. So um, you can flip over there if you want. Uh, it's God's conversation with Solomon, Second Chronicles 7. We tend to just quote verse 14. It starts earlier, but verse 12, The Lord appeared to Solomon and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear their heal their land. 
My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And then he talks about if you walk before me, I'll be with you. If you don't, here's the consequences. And then what will happen to this house? Why has the Lord done this? Because they forsook the Lord. That goes down to verse 22. So it's in the context of Solomon building the temple. It's in the context of God saying, this is the place that I have fixed my attention on my people as the center of their worship of me. So is it a promise to people in the United States? No, not a direct promise and not... Um, here, here would be my hesitation with the way that people sometimes take that verse. They say, if we do these things, God will bless us. I think that that is true, and we can make the case that that is true from, for example, what happened with Jonah and the Ninevites. They repented. God blessed them. He didn't bring the judgment and the pestilence that he was going to. That being said, if we say, my people and just substitute me for my people when in the context it clearly meant Israel, and we don't understand the difference between those two groups, then um, we're probably going to start turning it in ways that God didn't intend it to be used. If we see it as a principle of repentance brings God's forgiveness and blessing, that's true throughout Scripture. If we take it as an absolute promise, then we have to ask for us at this moment and say it's for us as God's people in this moment, then we have to start asking questions like, how many people? What does humbling look like? What does healing their land look like? Like it had a very specific set of parameters, which was the locust is devouring your crops. I'm going to take the locust away. We talked about that in Joel 2 when we were going through it in the Sunday school hour, maybe a month or two back, several months back. Um, if the enemies are attacking you or there is no rain, think about the time of Ahab. There's no rain. The people repent. They say we shouldn't have been worshiping Baal. Elijah leads them in this act of repentance. The king and all of the, the prophets or the priests of Baal are not yet dealt with. So there's that fear and it's not fully resolved. But the people begin to say we need to serve God, not Baal. What happens? Rain comes again. So there's pretty clear fulfillment of this in the history of Israel. It gets very fuzzy when we try to take it as a one-for-one for, one for an experience in the United States. Does that answer your question, Norma? Absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. The principle is we need to repent, and God pays attention to the repentance of his people in one of a couple of two or three ways. It could be Moses, or not Moses, Abraham's prayer if there's 10 righteous in a city of however many thousand, God delays judgment on them. And at this present moment in the United States, that might be the best that we can hope for in light of the sins that our nation has committed, is a delay of God's judgment. Um, maybe a moment like with Hezekiah, more than like a avoiding the exile. And I'm not saying that to be defeatist. I'm just saying... If we saw what God did to the people of Israel when they abandoned him, and we see the way that we have a nation, as a nation have behaved in the last 100, 150 years, we shouldn't expect an indefinite going our own way with no consequence. 
It could be that God is gracious and says, not only will I delay the judgment, but because of the, and I hesitate to say the number of people because that's not how it usually is expressed. Um, I w- something along the lines of, I will preserve a remnant of faithful people even as the whole country faces that judgment. So it could be a delay of judgment. It could be a preservation of those who follow God through judgment. That doesn't mean all of them will live. It means that some of them will survive and continue to pass on God's word and God's name. We see that also historically. Um, It could be that our prayers of repentance for sins that we commit, an intercessory prayer for the people around us, which we're going to get into in some of the later ones in a moment, I hope, um, that could lead us to... Um, sort of the prayer we see in Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jesus comes back. America doesn't face the destruction that we would expect based on her track record to this point. And so it's not a judgment is delayed so much or a remnant is preserved as it is Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom and all of those events unfold. So those are at least three possibilities. There might be more I'm not thinking of. So absolutely, we need to pray for repentance. I think where we could potentially go wrong is to take a verse like 2 Chronicles 7.14 and sort of say it glibly. And I'm not saying you would do this, but a lot of people I've heard say it just sort of, uh, yeah, we should do this. In the same way that people misuse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to talk about how they performed in a game leading up to the Super Bowl. That's, that's not the point of that verse. So um, we just need to be careful of how we're using it in its context. Yes. Um, and again, I would say, what does that look like historically? What does that look like in the Old Testament? But let's, let's come back to this. I think that's an excellent thing to discuss, but let's, let's come back to this. If we would say, and I think I would agree with Jonathan, that because these are expressing timeless truths about God, that we can legitimately pray even these words, but at least the sense of these words toward God's people now, um, I think it would be good if we take a moment and pray something along those lines that God would um, that God would bless us, that that blessing would, we could look at some of Paul's prayers, take the form of us growing in our love for one another, our love for God, our unity, our diligence in carrying out what God wants in the world, something along those lines. So if someone would take a moment and lead us in prayer along those lines. Thank you.
more fight through the more you speak, the meditations of our heart, and the daily activities and actions that we do follow according to will. Help us and guide us with you to help our work with our men and women and children to do more of what you want us to do. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn over to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10. And in Numbers 10, we see a prayer that God gave Moses to pray, or rather that he commanded them to pray as they set out on their journey. Uh, Look at chapter uh, 10. Uh, verses 33 through 36. Uh, someone want to read those for us? Sarah, thank you. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Okay. So there is a significance of the tribes leaving Mount Sinai instead of wandering in the wilderness. And then verse 33, they're setting out with the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. Why do you think God had Moses, or why do you think Moses prayed? I mean, we, I suppose we could make the case that God didn't command Moses to pray these words, but I think Moses' back and forth communication with God would imply that it was pleasing to God. Um, why would he pray uh, before they set out on the day's journey and then at the end of the day's journey? Sandra? Okay. Okay. Bruce, you gonna say something? Yeah, um, the prayer Olu was given would be that if their journey was to, they needed the Father's guidance to and protection for where they were going through this wilderness. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that in the phrase of it he says, Let your enemies be scattered, let those who hate you flee before you. Um, and I think it's, well, well, any other thoughts on that? Yes. Okay, that's an interesting idea. I was starting to say something about that. There, there seemed to be a kind of superstition attached to it later on. Remember in the time of Samuel, they take the ark and they say, well, if we take the ark, it'll sort of give us a victory, almost like it's a magic talisman or something like that. And God said, you're not going to treat the ark that way, so he lets the Philistines capture it. Um, but there were probably, because 
the Israelites started thinking of it that way, it wouldn't be shocking that the pagan tribes around them would have thought that it was something that they could attack and capture. And the way that those things tended to go was if you captured the enemy's stuff, you were more powerful than their god, and now their god had to serve your god or something along those lines. So it would not be shocking if they did want to try to do it. And so Moses is praying that God would, not, not ultimately the ark, because, I mean, without being irreverent, the ark was just a box. Um, but the sign of God's presence, he's saying, God, let your presence defend and protect us from your enemies. Okay, any other thoughts on... Um... Yeah, Jonathan? Sure. I mean, maybe the Lord wanted to encourage the people, so he said, Moses, this is what you should say to encourage the people. Sure. You know, because they hear that and they get confidence again that the Lord's going to be there. Sure. Yeah, I think it's fascinating when we look at it, this idea that he would say, God, go forth, and God, come back to us, and God would say yes. Because it's not as though Moses could constrain God to leave or to come back. But God graciously said, yes, I'm going to lead you and protect you on the way. And then I'm going to come back uh, and, and show my presence among you. And he was doing that, if you see in verse 11 of chapter 10, the cloud is over the tabernacle. So that was the sign of God's presence. So as the ark is carried forth... The cloud, the pillar of cloud, is going kind of in the vicinity of the ark, leading the people. And then when it's set back up where it's supposed to be, they set the tabernacle back up, then the cloud comes back, and that's a sign, visible sign to the people that God's present there with them. Mike? Wasn't the ark that had a lot of power, but didn't it have God like part of the thing? I know it had the scrolls in the ark, but it also had other things, ashes of something in the ark, because wasn't that the one that Right. Yes, because it's associated with God and His holiness and a sign of His presence. They weren't supposed to handle it carelessly. I guess when you say, "Did it have power in it?" I don't think you're thinking of it this way, but it wasn't power like in a transformer or something. Like a, like an electric transformer. What's that? Okay. Yeah, but 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 my point is. My point is not. Let me again. We're not supposed to. Um, we need to be careful in how we consider these things because um, people get superstitious about it, right? There's that whole discussion about if we could find the Ark of the Covenant or the cup that Jesus drank from or the shroud that he was buried in or all those, there's all that superstition around so-called relics. Um, the reason that I say from an objective perspective without being irreverent, it was just a box, is because when there were things put in it, when they became a problem for the people of Israel, they took them out and got rid of them. Like the, the serpent, the people started worshiping it. And so Moses took it out and smashed it, yes. The serpent that was on the staff when the thing happened with the snakes that were poisoned. Yeah, it was in the ark for a while. My point is just to say that the, um, 
there's power, but the power is because of God's presence, not because of the object itself. That, that's what I should have started with. That would have been shorter. Um, so write down, if you would, how you typically pray for God's protection, particularly on a journey, and how it compares to this example. Again, keeping in mind you're not Israel and all of that, but keeping in mind the same God who traveled with them also watches over us as his people. anyone willing to share an example that comes to mind of a way that you or someone that you've heard would pray for God's protection in a scenario like this, setting out on a journey? Mike? Well, a lot of times we pray for travel and some things and for good weather and stuff like that. Okay. Yes, John. Okay, that would be a good thing to pray. Okay, what else? Sir. I was just going to say, I, I was thinking about like different times that I've prayed for protection, especially on a journey. And I think sometimes when I pray and it's a short journey, I will oftentimes thank him at the end. But if it's a long journey, you usually get to the end and you're like, oh, I just got to get out of the car. And I don't necessarily think about like returning back and thanking him for the protection that he provided. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just making me think about that, that that's something that we should be doing and not just like moving on to the next thing. Okay. Any other thoughts? Sandra? Sure. Norma? We always pray for Church Mountain family members and Sunday we look at the church and pray for the Wednesday. Okay. I appreciate that because three or four weeks ago when there was all that snow, there was a guy that was driving crazy and he and us both got, almost got into an accident. So, um, anything else? Let me point this out. 
And I'm not criticizing any of the things that you all have said because I think that they are true statements and appropriate things to pray to God. Is there a difference between praying, God, let your enemies be scattered, and God, keep me safe from my enemies' threats, dangers? Jonathan? Sure. And we should always be trying to think of what would God really want. Because that's the obvious that leads to this point. Sure. And if we're facing something that looks like a challenge or a trial, you know, something like that, then we want, we want to ask for God's protection. And sometimes God might not give it to us, but, you know, that's the way we look at it. So the, the hard thing, I think, is Okay. I, let me throw this out here. I think there's a scenario of protection through, not just protection from. So we could pray for good weather. God, you know, I don't like driving when it's dark and it's rainy. Or there's been a handful of times when I've been driving and it's dark and then it's like white out snow and that's not great either. But if I, my prayer in that moment is, God, just make the storm go away so my life is easy... God may or may not answer that prayer, and there's maybe a degree to which that could potentially be slightly selfish. But if my prayer is, God, preserve me through this, I think here's, here's the point I think I'm trying to get at. To the extent that God's enemies are our enemies, I think our prayer for protection is going to be more in line of something that's pleasing to God that he will say yes to. Um. So, you know, to follow up on previous discussions that we've had on this, I don't have a problem with the idea of praying before a trip. I do think in light of the way that it's phrased here, we should pause and say, am I only praying for the trip to go a certain way because it would be most convenient and enjoyable for me? Or am I praying that God's enemies would be dealt with sometimes through me being in a particular situation that's maybe uncomfortable for me? Or... Um, sometimes by God just taking the circumstance and completely changing it. Like the, both of those, I think, are potential ways that God could respond. Any other quick thoughts on that before we uh, pray for this? Sandra. I hear what you're saying. I think there's a degree of which... Mm, and I think we talked about this maybe last week or the week before in something connected with prayer. Uh, let's say Braden hasn't cleaned his room and I told him to do it. 
am I going to withhold supper from him just because he hasn't done the thing he's supposed to do? We would say there's sins of omission as well as commission, right? So my hesitation with saying that is, I think that we should still pray, even if we feel like there's something we need to deal with with God, but at the same time, there shouldn't be an arrogance that says, I can keep sinning and ignoring it, and God will for sure make everything work out the way that I want, which I think is the point you're getting at. So, yeah, I think that's something to consider. So, yeah, Rob. That's what Moses does here. And so I think, I think here's, here's the main point I'm getting at. We should not assume that our enemies or obstacles are always God's enemies or obstacles. That's the thing I was trying to get at. Is that clear? Okay. So there's a goal where they should be coming more and more in alignment the more that we walk with God. All right. Um, does anyone have any examples of things that are coming up that we could pray for any trips or potentially dangerous circumstances that you anticipate going through in the near future. Well, I mean, beyond just driving on the roads. We were coming down on Rochester and turning onto Rochester where it splits from Stevenson and three people came flying by us at like 60 miles an hour and that was a little bit exciting for a minute, but. Um, yes, so there is that. There's the everyday kinds of things. Is there anything else coming up that's more extended or... Sandra? Okay. Sure, I just meant in terms of this subject of we can, uh, this subject of, of traveling or... And I suppose we could pray for God's protection even in a circumstance like that because it's not without its risks. So, okay, Mike, what were you going to say? Okay. Sure. Okay. Okay, Rob. Sure. Sure. Yeah. All right, let's just take a minute and I'll lead us in prayer for that briefly and then we'll look at our, our next section here. Maybe one more tonight. Father, as we consider this idea of praying for your protection in circumstances of danger, um, help us to think about whether our goals line up with yours, whether our desires are potentially in some way selfish, or whether they are, as Moses was, that they would be lined up with you, that the reason he prays for the Ark of the Covenant not to fall into enemy hands was not so much about because it would be bad for the Israelites, but because for your enemies not to triumph over your power. And um, yet we realize there are moments when you allowed things like that to happen, to teach your people something, as in the days of, uh, uh, I think it was Eli. And um, so I pray, Lord, that you would... Um, align our thoughts and our desires to recognize what it is you are for and what it is that you are against. Um, 
so that we would not be set at odds against your purposes. I think sometimes we're too quick to try to assign blame to a particular natural disaster, whether it be an earthquake or a flood or a tornado or a winter storm or whatever else it might be and say, well, this group of people in this city is particularly wicked in this way. And so you sent that thing just to punish them when the reality is sometimes those things affect many lives. And so help us not to be hasty in our assessment of those things, but rather to see them as a cumulative and increasing sign of your warning of people that they need to turn to you. Sometimes they're just part of the normal patterns of life and a demonstration of your power uh, at particular times of the year. We expect uh, tornadoes or snowstorms or intense heat or all of those different things. And so, again, in, uh, in the way that you show your power in them, help us to think about whether it is that you want us to pray for those things to go away or that we would arrive safely at Journey's End to have further opportunity to serve you. And I think maybe the second is more of what you would want us to pray, but as we continue to think about it and meditate on it, give us wisdom. Father, I pray particularly for Rob and for others who drive long distances, that you would give safety in those situations so that uh, as we are seeking to serve you well, we can continue to do that uh, without um, mishap. Uh, we pray for um, the weather in particular tomorrow, that there will be many things going on with that and potential uh, danger from icy roads and snowy conditions. And for those here tonight or otherwise connected with our church family and traveling in those things, we pray for safety in that, that you would make your presence known to your people and that, as uh, was mentioned, that we would thank you at the end for your preservation of us. Uh, even in things that are not journeys per se, but that are um, potentially risky. Um, I pray for Sandra with dental work. I know Corey just had some recently. Thank you for preserving her through that. Uh, I think Bruce has some coming up. It sounded fairly serious and significant as well. And, and um, beyond things like dental work, there are, there are other things that happen for people in terms of heart problems or or other health conditions that they deal with that uh, perhaps at the moment are somewhat dormant and at other times flare up and can be life-threatening. And so even in those things, and we ask these things not so that our lives can be easy, even though we much prefer to feel healthy and not have pain and not have all these different problems, but that it would be a testimony to the people that we encounter at doctor's offices and gas stations and all these other places that we go so that people who are uh, mocking your name can be surprised in the way that you have taken care of us as your people, that you would get glory from it and not us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Numbers chapter 11. I think we'll finish up with this one. Um, verses 1 and 2. Someone want to read Numbers 11, 1 and 2? Grace, thank you. So, this is not an uncommon circumstance in the history of the Israelites, especially in their time in the wilderness. It doesn't say, um, 
It has a very indirect phrasing of what it says here. Grace, what do you think that means when it says, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord? What, what do you think that's getting at? The first phrase, what, I mean, it's kind of a strange way of saying it. What do, what do you think he's trying to do by saying it that way? Do you, do you know? Okay. I mean, what's the, what's the straightforward meaning, do you think? Okay. Okay. They complained. They didn't like what was going on. And who heard it? And God heard it. But I think... Any other thoughts? Why would Moses phrase it this way? They became... When we see like or as... Yeah, Okay, possibly the difficulties they think they're experiencing are not genuine. Suppose they are genuine. What's bad about them expressing it in this way? They're being like everyone else. Okay. They're not trusting God. Okay, good. Rob? I think it's um, possible, too, that, that they've been blessed greatly. And even though they've been blessed greatly, now, like those who haven't been blessed greatly, they're complaining like those who haven't been blessed. Okay. So Rob and Sarah both making the point they're complaining like people who don't know God. Thinking about Ecclesiastes 5, what was that saying the other day when we looked at it, Braden? Ecclesiastes 5. When you're speaking in God's hearing, being careful what you're saying. Okay? Now, what's interesting about this is, where do you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Sandra. Probably. So what would often happen is they would complain, and then they would come and say, Moses, fix this. This is your problem. You put us in this mess. And then God's judgment would fall because ultimately the problem wasn't Moses. It was them complaining against God. So yeah, I think there is a sense in which they're blaming God. The, the point that I'm trying to get at is if God is everywhere, and if God hears all our words and knows all our words, First of all, we can't hide from God what we're saying and thinking. And second of all, to the extent that we are expressing it in a way that drags other people into it with us, we need to be thoughtful about the way that we're responding because um, God was not pleased on the number of occasions that um, the Israelites complained. Because again, I think it comes back to this. We're attacking God's character and saying, God is not a good God because he has put me in this situation and I want all the people around me to know it. I want all of them to complain and oppose God with me. And I think that that's a big part of why God's judgment fell. It was less about the fact of complaint because, and I don't think we'll get to this necessarily, but at the end of the chapter, Moses says, God, this is a mess. Why are we here? But Moses is taking it to God, which we've seen several times before, like in Exodus and other places. Moses' pattern is to typically take it to God. The pattern of the people is to t discuss it amongst themselves, get all riled up, blame Moses, blame God, and then God's judgment comes on them. So, um, follow-up question. Why do you think God didn't stop the judgment until Moses prayed? So, first of all, what was the judgment? Fire, okay? 
Um, Mike, were you say something? Okay. Yeah, good. John? It shows the power that God, uh, how position he had given Moses. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, Sandra? Okay. Okay, good. There's a, there's a degree of intercession that's going on here. There's a... Um, there's the power and position that God's given to Moses in leading the people. There's the heart of intercession that Moses expresses as an anticipation or as a type of Christ. Any other thoughts on uh, what's going on here? Why did God? Why didn't He stop until Moses prayed, or why did He stop when Moses prayed? Norma. I would say yes. Like I said, we're going to see at the end of the chapter, probably not tonight, but next week, Moses expresses a complaint to God, which is different, I think, than complaining about God. So complaining about God to get everybody else unhappy with God and saying God has no idea what he's doing is sin. But the expressing of dissatisfaction or discouragement, God, at the very least, God doesn't always respond in judgment the same way. Like we'll see at the end of the chapter. Bruce? Why did the, were the people against God when God helped them to get their freedom from Egypt? That's a good question. Think about another time when they complain about the food. Right. What, what were they doing in their mind when they said, We want to go back to Egypt and be slaves because we had what? Garlic, food. Garlic leeks, onions, seasonings, meat. Now, for them to have that concept in their mind in comparison to what God was actually providing for them, what did they have to do? For them to... Xander? Okay. They forgot how God had provided for them. They forgot how bad their circumstances were when God delivered them. They wanted to go back because they felt like all these consequences that were going on weren't that big of a deal in their mind because they were kind of far away. So along those lines, why do we tend to complain to God? Right. Yeah, so we have short memory about what God has done. We are magnifying the present moment and how we don't like it. And the more we say to ourselves, I don't like it, the more that we actually don't like it. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we say, well, I really hate what's going on here. So let me get other people riled up about it. Because if I don't get other people on board with it, it's not going to seem like as big of a deal. So let's say you went to Dollar General and they overcharged you a quarter for a bag of chips that you bought. That's not that big of a deal. But if you can get 50 other people to go pick it at Dollar General and say they overcharge for chips, suddenly it feels like a really big deal. And that's a dumb illustration, but maybe there's a little bit of a parallel to what happens here with the people of Israel. So, all right, write down whether or how you have prayed. Oh, hang on. Uh, no, this is, yeah. 
Write down whether or how you've prayed for God's judgment to be halted even upon those who deserve it. This might not be something that we've actually ever done. Someone deserves God's punishment and you say, God, will you spare this person along the lines of what Moses did here? Anyone have any examples that come to mind? So I was thinking about this. I was having a hard time thinking of a specific example for me. So, Rob? Okay. All right. Sandra. Okay. Anything else? I've got uh, praying for leaders in our government, even though they don't follow the book. Okay. All right, Jonathan? I think when you run into situations in your life where someone maybe, maybe you've been driving and someone does something really dangerous or whatever and you're like, you could have just killed me, <laughs> you know? Or, you know, somebody's doing something, you know, maybe in your neighborhood or firing off a gun or you know, just being annoyed and annoyingly loud or something. But there's all kinds of things that can come into your life. Maybe somebody's actually doing something to potentially harm you. Sometimes I've actually prayed for God to convict them of their sin and maybe even save their soul. Sometimes I'm in my own sinful thoughts and I don't think of that. <laughs> sure. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive to say, we need to call the police because this is dangerous. And we can pray, God, their lives have to be really messed up right now for them to think that this is okay. Will you please, you know spare them from the consequences that are likely to happen from them doing all these sorts of things. Um, Mike? Well, even when I had my heart surgery, uh, I'm sure people prayed for me to, you know, get through that. Yeah. And God blessed, you know, and to heal me. But uh, so many people that I was around that were going through sometimes very hard things. And very often it made me wonder, why was God putting me through this right that time? Sure. And of course I prayed for them to be healed. So that, you know, same thing. Sure. Okay. Anything else? Sarah? I think it's sometimes hard to know what is God's judgment and what isn't. Okay. So, like when I was thinking about it, 
affect a lot of people and could potentially be judgment. And what's the difference between that being judgment versus it just being something that happens? Sure. Um, but I think I have prayed in those instances for people who don't know God to be drawn to him through their circumstances. Sure. And then also for people who do to be, you know, renewed in their desire to serve him. But it just, some of those things make me think a little bit about what is judgment versus not judgment. Okay. So, a couple of things that have come out here is this idea of not being vindictive toward people who personally do us harm, which I think is a theme we see a lot in the Bible. Another of them is praying for government uh, that sort of righteousness would be upheld. And, you know, First, uh, first Timothy 2 says the idea of praying for leaders, for them to come to conversion, at the very least that we would have peace. And then the third thing about, you know, praying for people who are part of sort of these wide-scale disasters, that God would um, preserve them that they might be saved, something like that, instead of the attitude of, uh, think about that story of when the tower falls and people say, they must have been really bad and God just knocked the tower down to punish them. We tend to want to unravel all of those details instead of saying, here's someone who needs God's mercy as well as deserving God's judgment because there's all been, all of us have had moments before we knew Christ in which we both deserved God's judgment and then also received God's mercy. And so, um, yeah. Uh, I think something that we could pray for collectively would be along the lines of uh, knowing when to pray for God's judgment to stop. Um, for God to hear prayers of intercession, for us to be faithful in prayers of intercession. So if a couple of people would lead us in prayer for those things as we uh, wrap up tonight.